So for our sermon today, we are going to be applying Song of Songs 5.9. If you please rise out of honor of God's word, Song of Songs 5.9. That's found on page 717 in your Black Pew Bible. I don't think I've ever done a sermon in church on Song of Songs, although Sarah Winter had a Song of Songs for her wedding sermon, so that was fun. Um, so as, as you read through the book of Song of Songs, the Songs of Solomon, um, which I'm guessing that you guys often do, uh, <laughs> maybe not, when we read she, that's the Shulamite, that's uh, Solomon's um, fiancé, or yeah, at this point, fiancé. He is Solomon. I'm, I'm not going to get into the debates. Um, but then the others are her companions. So as we think about this in terms of the church, Christ is he, the church is she, or Christians are she, and then the others is the world. That's the world that's trying to figure out what's going on. What is this love that exists between Christ and his church? And so that's the others or the companions. And so now we're going to be reading a text from those others. Song of Songs 5.9 What is your beloved more than another beloved? O most beautiful among women, women, what is your beloved more than another beloved that you thus adjure us? Let us pray. Father, as we come to think about this text, to seek to apply it to our lives, we ask that you would guide us, that you would lead us in your truth. Father, for your word is truth. I pray that you'd bless Jason as he shares and bless me as well, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts might be pleasing to you, O Lord. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So before I call Jason up, um, the, the reason that we're doing this today partly goes back to um, my call as pastor from Ephesians 4 to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And so Paul talks about that in Ephesians 4. And as we were discussing that at our deacons meeting, uh, Jason started talking about how, uh, about truth. And Kirsten and I had just been at a World Mission Prayer League uh, home, count, no, board of directors. Sorry, it changed titles on me. I'm still having a hard time getting that right. Um, board of directors meeting. They were talking about how we as Christians need to be presenting Christianity in light of truth, goodness, and power. Because we need to be speaking the truths of Christianity, but not just the truths, but the goodness and the power of Christianity into this world. Not just living them for ourselves and enjoying them ourselves. They need to go out into this culture that we are living in. And so with that, I'm going to call up Jason for the first point and then and I, we did it that way so that he could wax eloquent and then I could shrink my portion as necessary. Right? Sure. All right, and with that, I'll call up Jason to speak about truth. Oh, Jason has handouts. That's pretty close. So it kind of starts, in, 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 as it talks about here, truth um, is the property of being in accord with fact or reality. So in everyday language, truth is typically ascribed to things that aim to represent reality or otherwise correspond to it. Um, some of what kind of came up when we were at the deacon meeting and we are talking about it. Um, is, is even with missions, is how to relate to 
someone else. Like if, if I were to say, I have this book here, right? And if I say, this is my book of Fantastica. And in this book, it says that on every day at a certain time, you should say thank you to Jason. And there should be a, a bunch of things in that, right? Does that mean have any bearing to you at all? Why? There's no authority for this in you, right? I mean, if, if you were to come to it, you're like, I, I don't care two cruds what you have written in this book. It means nothing to me. When we go up and speak to someone, as we live nowadays in a culture that is post-Christian and actually looks down on Christianity, why do we start that conversation and say, the Bible says we should do this? They don't care. They don't. And in fact, when you say that, it hurts your credibility because now they're looking at it like, oh, that's just nonsense. You know, Jay Seeger talks about, if, even among Christians, if you want to talk about your faith and you want to have a, a biblical discussion, you need to start with the point, is God's word your authority? Is, is it exactly what it says it is? Or is it even like a, my niece who's attending Bethany in the, in the, in the cities, and they, one of her professors is like, well, it's more of just a kind of a guideline. It's not, it, it was true then, but it's not so much now. You can't argue that back, and you know you can't have that discussion. If I want to talk with you, Doug, about it, we have to have a baseline. Once we have that, then we can use this as our authority, and it, and it works well. But if we don't agree on this, that this is your authority, it's not a place that you can argue from a point of authority on. So it's kind of where I got kind of passionate about it. Um, Jay Seeger, who I have written on there, if you ever want to have something from like a, a very logistical point of view. He was a guy who has, I believe, his master's or even maybe, maybe he's got his doctorate in physics, but he's also like a preacher. So a lot of his stuff is done, uh, if you want to talk about dinosaurs, you want to talk about evolution, creationism, if you want to talk about is God's word, the inspired word of God and why, he has very um, logistical thinking and, and his points of view and how that comes about. And a lot of it is really good to, to, to look at. Um, so if, if we look at it, say we want to talk about why, um, why should men, why is it important to have like kids inside of marriage? Why is it important for men to be around and active in that relationship, right? We could argue it from the Bible and we could say, well, it says like in 1 Corinthians 11.3 how women should submit to men, men should submit to Christ, and Christ submits to God. Like even, even he, you know, even Christ is submitting to God's authority. You know, he's like, Lord, I don't want this to happen, but let your will be done. You know, he's still submitting to God in that. What happens when we don't do that? Well, I can, if, if, if I don't, if you, the Bible's not your authority, how do I talk to you about that? I can't. So how do you, how do you come around and, and do that? You talk about it, and we look at this. So I'm going to pass this out. I'm going to read a little bit off of it. The, the link is on here. It's a lot to type in, so if you actually wanted to read this article yourself, let me know and I'll email it to you. But it says, the United States has the highest rate of children living in single-parent households in the, in the world. We are at a 23% of children living with one parent or no other adults. And when you go on to read a little bit more, it says that between 41 and 53%, depending on your age group, there's no men in, in that environment. So when we go and look at, I'm going to hand this out a little bit. As we go and look at this, why are so many young youth right now, why are they so disrespectful to authority? Why are they so disrespectful to other things? Why don't they want to listen? Why are they misbehaving and acting the way they are? We don't need the Bible to tell us why. Statistics show it. There's no doubt about it. When men are gone, it happens. What happens when mom is sitting there trying to correct the child and dad just walks into the room? It's like a completely 
there's a completely you know different in, in mentality it takes on immediately. You know, it, it's proven all over the place that men are the ones who have, they show the discipline, they show how you behave, what you do, and what's going on. And that example comes from the man. And typically the mother is more of the nurturer and they, and they bring some of that into it. So when it's the fatherless family that we see statistically, what we're seeing is what's in society right now. I don't need the Bible to do that. But now if I, we can get you on that mindset and get you thinking about it, we can circle back and say, like, this is God's design. This is why. You know, I don't need to say that, start with the Bible. It's, it's like if, if I was a designer, I have an owner's manual. Do I take an owner's manual and type it all out and then I go and build a car? You, you know, the car is designed and then they write the manual. This is an accord of how God designed things to work. This isn't like God wrote it down and it's like, okay, now I'm going to make this happen. It's like he, he did it and the Bible is an accord of that. So his creation done right should reflect what the Bible says. We don't need to speak from authority from the Bible. We need to be able to articulate that a little bit more from a worldly standpoint and, and, and bring it back. Um, same, same way, like one of my favorite ones, and I had a discussion about this with a, with a gal in my freshman, one of my freshman classes. We were talking about the big topic things if they talk about abortion, right? We try and argue that from a Christian standpoint, but how do I do that if I don't want to bring this into the conversation at all? You know, the, it used to be like it was talking about, well, it's not viable below a certain age. And you said they had 18 weeks now, Lindy? They don't talk about the viability anymore because that's constantly getting less and less and less, so they have to redraw the, the finish line, right? Redraw it, so they don't want to talk about it. So now the big one is my body, my choice. And I love that because before, if, if I were to walk up to you, Nathan, and put my finger in your mouth right before I get punched out for doing it, <laughs> does my finger become part of your body? No. What happens when that first cell is fertilized inside a body? It has unique DNA. It is not part of a woman's body. It might be in her body, and it might act like a parasite to that body, you know, but it is definitely not her body. There, and and that's, that's scientific. There's no, you can't even argue that. It's just the way that it is. If we look up in Jeremiah there and, and Psalm that have on that handout, it talks about that God knew you before you were even before that even happened, before your parents married and before anything happened, he had your whole life, he knew what was going to happen, and you were on his design at that point, which is where we get that, you know, life begins at conception. God knew you before that. It was, it was meant to be that you were going to become into that. We don't, we don't need to talk about that. You know, so when you want to talk about some of those narratives, it, it opens up that door because like that gal that I was talking to after I talked to her a little bit, then she was... Asking me about a lot of the other things, if it was same-sex stuff, if it was creation, evolution, and, and it opened up a whole door. But if I had just started from, well, the Bible just says it's, it's wrong. Well, she wasn't Christian. That's not, that's not going to do anything for me because I might as well open up a book of Fantastic and say, this book says this. And it's like, you know, so the, the, the point of, I guess, of this is the, the truth is there. We don't need to argue um, from a Bible to have that, that truth. The truth is in the world already. It's learning how to, how to talk about that, especially in a post-Christian society that, um, I, as I guess where I got passionate about, is to just think about that and, and, and think about how, to, how, the, how that actually works, you know, and, and be able to circle back and, and bring that back to what you want. Because that's, that's a lot of how we're going to reach out to other people and, and to do stuff. So I'm going to leave it at that before I talk a lot. I know I talked fast. I'm passionate about it. So um, 
Yeah, sorry, Joe gave me a mic. Minutes. That's not bad. I can go more. I was trying to. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And so, <laughs> so as as we think about this, the, we think about truth. So I'm I'm going to restate what Jason said, not because Jason did a poor job or anything, but just because that's the way that my brain thinks. And if I can't restate something that someone else said, that tells me that I don't really understand it. But what what Jason's saying is that when we're interacting with a culture that no longer believes the word, we don't start with the word. We start with things that they also hold as authority. And so what does our culture hold as authority? Well, science to a good degree. You hear all the statistics that are spouted on the news. And so it tells me statistics are, so math to some degree at least, is being held as an authority. And so we can use those things. But the purpose of using those things isn't that that's our evangelism, but that gives us the opportunity to circle back to Scripture. Because if these things are true, if, what, if the Bible's true, how many of you actually believe that the Bible's true? Yeah. So if the Bible's true, then that should be reflected in the truths of the world. And also then the second part is good. So when Jason's talking about truth, it's like this is what reflects in reality. This fits with reality. Because what's going on oftentimes in our world nowadays doesn't fit with reality. That's truth. Goodness is the question of, does this work in reality? Does this work according to the way that it's supposed to work? And that's what goodness is. And we live in a world that they don't know truth and they don't know goodness. They are like these others, these companions of the bride. Tell me, tell me about your beloved. Who is he? Why should, why should we seek him? Because we live in a world that doesn't know this. And so they're asking us as Christians, hey, you, you nutballs, or whatever they're calling you, why should we go after your God? Why should we listen to your God? So Jason's saying, well, it's because it's true. See how this fits in reality. But also because it's good. It is, so a biblical concept of good, think about Genesis when God is creating. He says, let there be light. And there was light. And God said it was good. Oh, it did what he wanted. So, I'll use an illustration from materialism. Materialism is the belief that if I get stuff, I'll be happy. That that'll satisfy me. How many of you have ever gotten something and it did not make you lastingly and eternally happy? (laughs) Right? I was, yeah. You know, I was thinking about, yeah, I've got way too many illustrations about that. But that's materialism. Is materialism powerful? Yeah. Is it good? No, it's not good in a strict sense of the word. Because if it was good, it would actually do what it promises to do. And it doesn't do what it promises to do. And so it's not good. It doesn't do what it intends. And so it's not good in a biblical sense. And so that that exists in everything in our world. Hedonism. Hedonism is not good. If hedonism was good, if it did what it promised, it would have ended at the hippie movement in the 70s. If it actually did what it promised, it wouldn't have gone any deeper. It wouldn't have gone any weirder like it's gone now. And so what we're experiencing now is 
hedonism brought to a deeper and wilder degree and people are still not finding satisfaction in pleasure. It doesn't exist because it's not good. You know, we think about... um, (laughs) So this one might get me in trouble, but we'll see. How many of you, after spending time on Facebook, feel better than when you first went on? (laughs) Is that the way that that normally... Sometimes, kind of, sort of, but not normally. And so that promise, hey, just, just go on, you'll feel better. This will help. It'll help you relax. It'll help you clear your mind. Whatever, whatever promises it's giving you. It gives these promises, but do they, are they satisfied? Are they fulfilled? No. What does that tell you? It's not good. But I can promise you something. If you seek Jesus, he always fulfills his promises. And so as Christians, we have goodness in ways that the world does not have goodness. I, I think about this when we first got married. Um, when I was on my internship, I was engaged to Kirsten. I had a friend there named Pat in Abiding Savior. There were a number of Pats, so I'm not going to say which Pat. Um, but he said, well, actually we were just, before we got married, he said, Word to the wise, they change after you marry them. <laughs> Oh, okay, well, that's good to know. And we got married. We were married for about a month, month, two months, something like that. He comes up to me and he says, hey, Joe, how do you like being married? And I said, it's great. I love being married. This is so much fun. She doesn't have to leave at night. This is really nice. And he goes, just wait. <laughs> like, what? First off, why would you tell someone that? <laughs> Secondly, why? As we've sought to live our marriage in a godly manner, as I as the husband, I can't speak to Kirsten, but uh, as I as the husband have sought, not that I've succeeded, but as I've sought to love my wife, to hold her highly, to put her first, to treat her as the weaker vessel, as, you know, as, to treat her as someone that's actually delicate and needs to be protected. As I've sought to do that, love her as Christ loved the church, I have been blessed in our marriage. And we have... I, as far as I'm concerned, we have a good marriage. You have to talk to Kirsten about the other side. And depending on the day, she might give you a different answer. <laughs> but as I look at our marriage, it's like, as we've sought to live out a Christian marriage, this is good. This is a blessing. This is joyful as we sought to be Christian parents and train up our children in the fear of the Lord, not train up our children in the fear of dad but to train up our children in the fear of the Lord. We've been blessed through our children. Well, that depends on the day too. But, uh, and again, none of them are paying attention right now. But that's to be expected. Um, that's, yeah. <laughs> so, but what are, is it good? Is Christianity good? When God says, do it this way, is it good? Yeah. Praise God. Think about that. We actually have these promises. The world's out there trying to figure out how this stuff works and we've got it. And so what are we called to do? We're called to live it out. Why? Because then I can point to my life and I can say, see what we have? You can have that too. Because then my life becomes that testimony. I think about, I was telling Brian about this when we went on the camping trip. Um, I was reading an article about a, a Gentile, so he's not a Jewish man, he's a Gentile, but he was a reporter. 
and he decided for a year he was going to live out the Old Testament Jewish laws. And as he lived out these Old Testament Jewish laws, every aspect of his life got better. His finances got better. His relationships got better. His, the way he interacted with his work got better. Every aspect of his life got better. And after a year, he quit doing it. Why? It was too much work. It was too much work to follow all these laws, to obey all these commandments. So he's not actually seeking a good life. He's seeking a good life that's easy. And I'm not telling you that you need to follow all the Old Testament laws. But as people seek the Lord and walk in his ways, what happens? Our lives actually improve. And not just our lives, but the communities around us. What would happen if all of our families had good marriages? Good marriages. Do you think we'd be having the problems in the schools that we're having now? Not at all. Do you think we'd be having the problems in the government that we're having now? Where they're talking about a national divorce? Think about that. That's insane. We would be having those problems because we'd actually learn how to talk to each other because that's what a godly marriage looks like. And so then godly children out of godly marriages act in godly manners. So that's our goal. So it's good. But it's also powerful. And this is something that our world does not have, but they're seeking desperately. Have you ever seen, um, when, I was in, when I was in college, we used to go out with this group called uh, Street Level Witness, Street Level Evangelism. And we'd go into uptown, we'd go into dinky town, we'd go downtown Minneapolis, and we'd just go and evangelize. Go and start, strike up conversations with people. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I was never scared. People are like, oh, weren't you scared? It's like, no, because I was a college-age male. We're not scared of anything. <laughs> it's just the way we work. Um, and I was up in Uptown and I was sitting down with someone at a coffee shop. I ordered a cup of coffee and he was sitting there. He's all by himself and he had a, a pack of cards and he was flipping cards. And so I did what any good evangelist would do and I turned over and said, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm reading my tarot cards. It's like, oh, well, that's fascinating. And so we had a 45-minute, 50-minute conversation about tarot cards. And you know what I learned? He's seeking a way to divine the future so that he can control it. He wants to know what's coming so that he can prepare himself and he can change it. He's seeking power. So when I asked him, how do you learn to read tarot cards? And he says, well, you just kind of figure it out as you go. It's like, what? You mean there's not a class or a book? He goes, no, I just kind of go with what I feel. Oh, so do these things come about? Well, sometimes. Oh, well, that poor guy, he's seeking power, but he doesn't have it. He's seeking to control the world, but it can't do it. Why do people pursue money? Do you know one of the reasons that people pursue money is to protect themselves? I want to have enough so in case anything happens, I'll be okay. What is that? Power. I want power to protect myself from the chaos of the world. That didn't work very well in Germany after World War I, where you have that story about the guy who brings a wheelbarrow full of money to the grocery store to get food. And when he comes out, the wheelbarrow's gone, but the money's still there. <laughs> the money wasn't worth anything. Don't worry, some of you will get that later. Um, off joking. But we seek power. But we as Christians, do we have access to the one who is powerful? Do we have power? No. 
Who am I? You know, I'm just a hick from northern Minnesota. But I know Jesus. The one who's crucified and raised again. The one who works in this world. We know Jesus. We can bring people to Jesus. Kirsten and I had a wonderful opportunity to pray for a couple that came to our door the other day. Just praying for them. They weren't looking for prayer. They were looking for votes. Um, But we were able to pray with them. We were able to reframe this. Like you can trust God to bring this stuff about. That doesn't mean that you have to, you know, you don't have to go and knock on doors, but you can trust God. And we can introduce him to the power of this world. And that's what we have. Now, have you guys ever prayed something for something and actually had it answered? Yeah. You know, I, I, I keep pointing to like our infertility, but that was just so wild that we prayed. And then, boom, we had, well, now we have three children. <laughs> but the gift of God, the power of God to work in this world. This is the God that we know. And this is what we can bring to the world. I agree with Jason. You know, if I just go leading with this, boy, it's going to be hard in our culture today because we do not live in a Christian culture. They do not accept the word of God as authority. Even though it is, they don't accept it. They reject it out of hand oftentimes. And sometimes they'll reject prayer out of hand. Out of hand. I was actually, I offered to pray for someone here in St. James one time and they ran away from me. It was really interesting. Never had that happen before. Um, you know, I prayed for many people in Minneapolis and I had no problem, but I come to St. James and I can't pray for people? Whatever. But this is authority. But what if they don't accept it? Well, then we live according to it. We understand it. We seek out these truths. We bring them to them. We live them out. We act accordingly. And then we can bring into a culture truth, goodness, and power, which they don't have but they desperately don't want. Who is your beloved? Who is your beloved? But you know what? They're not going to ask us that question if we're not living according to these things. So our call then is what? Become monks or become street-level evangelists. No. Our call is to live out the truths of Scripture. That mu- you might be called to be a monk. I don't know. You might be called to be a street-level evangelist. Maybe. But if you're living according to the word of God, you will exhibit its truth, you will exhibit its goodness, and you will exhibit its power. Any questions? Does this make sense? If, if we're going to evangelize, if we're going to bring the truth of God into a world that's dark, how are we going to do it? I'm going to close with another quote. Last time it was Hudson Taylor. This time it's going to be St. Francis of Assisi. Wherever you go, preach the gospel. And if necessary, use words. What does that mean? Our lives are the greatest proclamation that we could ever make. And when people ask, we give them a reason for the hope that's in us. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that is in us. We thank you for truth. We thank you that your word is good. Lord, and we thank you that you are powerful and that you work and that you answer prayers and that you move in this world, Lord. And just think of the testimonies that you have that you have done in our lives, that you've given to us as we've prayed. We thank you. Lord, and I pray that we would be bold to speak your truth as we ought. Lord, to proclaim your word through our lives as we ought. 
that you might be glorified in a world that needs you. Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.